Thank you very much. Bell Labs president Marcus Weldon is not prone to hyperbole. So his comments immediately following a presentation by Stephen Friend this May did not go unnoticed. I normally make a joke at this point, but it's not, not a jokey talk. It is the bravest talk I think I've ever seen. The bravest talk he's ever seen. The bravest talk I think I've ever seen. Marcus wasn't alone in his response that day. In fact, the entire audience was abuzz. Prior to taking their questions, Marcus summarized what we'd all just heard. Because it starts with science and medicine and goes all the way into politics and philosophy and who we are as people. So I think a second round of applause for that. Uh, it's just amazing. And, of course, he was able to fit a joke in, after all. You thoroughly earned the statue I'm going to give you later, although it feels a bit inadequate. Uh. From Nokia Bell Labs, this is Future Human, a series about the human potential of technology. This time around, we're going to explore what lies at the heart of Friend's timely lecture, the importance of vitality, the future of human agency, and what exactly endangered experiences are and why they're worth protecting. This is Episode 5 of Friend's Warning. If we do our job right with this episode, you'll carve out an hour or so during downtime and listen to our companion show, Episode 6, which is the full audio of Stephen Friend's lecture. Just who is Stephen Friend, and why was he invited to present as part of Bell Labs' Shannon Luminary series? A Midwesterner by birth and a student of both philosophy and medicine, his career has spanned everything from teaching at Harvard Medical School to helping to isolate a cancer susceptibility gene. Now, he's chairman of a company he co-founded, Sage BioNetworks, and working full-time at Apple on their health initiative. Considered an authority in the field of cancer biology, he's been a tireless advocate for making large-scale, data-intensive biology broadly accessible to the entire research community. As Marcus puts it in his introduction that day... They would share medical data so you could actually learn from each other as opposed to keep them in silos and write individual papers that essentially didn't ever see the whole picture. In that Sage BioNetworks work, he's also started something called the Resilience Project, which allows you to actually tell you what's not wrong with you. And I'll explain that a little bit in my limited understanding. Uh, rather than asking the sick people why they're sick, you ask the people who are genetically similar to them, meaning they're a relative or they have the same genome uh, to a good approximation, why they're not sick. And then you look at the things that essentially have allowed them to remain healthy despite the presence of some uh, gene that, they, that should have actually caused a condition. Then, in his disarming way, Friend previews what he'll be speaking about. What I'm going to try to do is to weave some themes together that have to do with how we think, what we're responsible for in technology um, and, and in art. I'm going to be spending time talking about um, digital codes that encode life and, and how we can actually probe those to identify therapies in ways you might not anticipate. And then I'm going to switch over and I'm going to look at this important uh, opportunity to navigate uh, between health and disease, the 362 days that hopefully you're not in the presence of a, of a physician. Um, I'm going to move over to um, how our lives are being controlled. People are planning on, on controlling them, uh, the role of agency and, and free will. And that's going to 
allow me to go into some aspects of trust and fear that I think are, are appropriate today in our, in our world particularly, the last uh, 106 days or whatever, and, and, the, and the role of art and technology in determining awareness and, and free will. So, yeah, the lecture covers a lot of ground. And in doing so, Friend drops a lot of truth bombs. In order to ground the talk, he harkens back to an age-old conundrum about how diseases occur. This concept of what element of that is really coming from nature, what is coming from nurture, is something that in the last hundred years, we've actually made some progress. It's a, f- a different way we're looking at it than if we were sitting here a hundred years ago. And in, in, a, in a simplistic way, um, my guess is that most of you in, in the audience sort of had this idea of, well, it's a little more nature, it's a little more nurture. So this, this idea that things such as Down syndrome or hemophilia are likely to be genetic, and when you get over to tuberculosis or scurvy, it's more environmental. I think we carry around in our head some sort of template that says, oh, that's something which is more genetic, that is something that's uh, more about nurture. I'm going to try to blow that up. (laughs) I'm going to try to uh, realize the simplicity of of that. It's a good rubric, but uh, it's uh, potentially uh, simplistic. Friend cites specific watershed moments in his career such as when he was a resident at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. Father came into an examining room with a young boy who had um, an obvious defect in his uh, left eye. And that was sad, but it was made more poignant by the fact that if you looked at the data, it was clear that he also actually had also a left-sided eye lesion, which in fact was that he had had the same lesion He passed it on to his son. He knew he had. And that was a pretty heavy burden for him to bear. And out of those moments, I think, um, come that yearning to do things differently. Indeed, Friend and his colleagues would eventually isolate a cancer susceptibility gene for retinoblastoma, what the young boy suffered from. Soon, there were other similar discoveries of gene mutations responsible for diseases such as muscular dystrophy and cystic fibrosis. But of course, while some of these were single gene or Mendelian diseases, most illnesses aren't. But the whole original idea was that if you knew the gene that was responsible for a particular symptom or for a particular disease, you would be able to cure that disease. Find the gene, cure the disease. And that has been a disaster. Turns out, Only a handful of diseases could be cured via single-gene replacement. This took Friend down a path, inspired in no small part by the groundbreaking work of clinicians battling AIDS in the late 80s and early 90s. Why did some folks with high levels of HIV not get AIDS? Friend radically reframed his approach, ushering in a new perspective that undergirds all of his subsequent research. How can I study those who did not get sick, how could I, instead of the 99.9% of the time where researchers were going, oh, I'm going to take all the individuals who have this disease, the, the lens switched to, why don't we start looking at those people who should have gotten sick and didn't get sick? Is there a way, sort of interesting, right? How do you find people that should have done something and they didn't? His team focused on a set of pediatric diseases and set about finding data for adults who, despite having genetic predisposition, never ended up getting sick. 
They sourced existing genetic data from around the world, encompassing half a million people. In the end, out of that over half a million, there were only uh, between uh, 10 and 15, depending upon how you uh, count, um, uh, examples out of a half million. But the evidence that that was possible, that, that those individuals existed out there, and they could be informative for that small set of the genome, right? So that's 100 out of the uh, 20,000 genes that we, that we looked at. And um, uh, so proof of concept, good start. They've since moved on to adult diseases like Alzheimer's, and they continue analyzing millions of subjects to understand why they didn't get sick. At the heart of it is determining the factors that breed resilience, as he explains in a conversation with Marcus after the presentation. The resilient individuals that we found um, out of that half million, the dozen or yeah. so, are so valuable. In those individuals, we have to mine the information that is everything but that mutation. The mutation that sits in them is one that should have caused cystic fibrosis. It yeah. should have been one that would have resulted in death before that person was five. And everyone else one has ever studied that happened to. The fact that this person uh, made it to 30 years of age, they were an adult, and they did not have that, um, it, it's worth pouring the resources into those to 10 that. or 15 people. Exactly. It's amazing. Um, so we start with that discussion of the recipes are old recipes that apply to 10,000 people, but don't necessarily apply to you because you could be, if not the one of the truly rare, one who has a different outcome because something else comes along and, and diverts their outcome into another, yep. onto another path. Disrupting scientific research, choosing to study the healthy versus the ailing is just a starting point for the more fundamental disruption Friend proposes. Reconfiguring the patient-doctor relationship. Through the ages, we have gone to individuals, priestly experts, who we go to get healed. Um, I think we go to the cardiac surgeon the way our forebears always went to uh, shamans and, and medicine men. We go saying, um, I'm in trouble, and I want you to heal me. And this is an extremely powerful moment, but there's an issue here, which is that what begins, and I as a physician have uh, noted this in the last year a couple of times when, when some things happened to me, there's this weird thing that our brain does where we go, okay, tell me what to do. There's an asymmetric dialogue that actually gets set up with the physician. And it's almost like a bargain or where the, the idea is, if you heal me, I'll, I'll follow your orders. I'm, I'm going to admit I don't know what's going on, and in return, you're going to heal me. And that has um, some power. You sort of, okay, you, you deal with it. I'm not going to be able to. At the same time, it prevents individuals from owning where they are and feeling uh, you know, with themselves and, and, and empowered. So this, there's a transfer of agency that is grounded on a contract. So in return for health, I'm going to allow this to, ha to happen. That is the way the medical system uh, works today. I think we need to, as uh, technologists, think of how is it possible to shift that asymmetric dialogue to a more symmetric one particularly in navigating between health and disease. He was willing to go to a place that was very uncomfortable for everyone, but do that humanistically and logically.
He's a doctor. He's a healthcare professional. And he said they're shamans and, and, and sort of recipeists where they look up a recipe that says you probably have this, take this. If it goes away, good enough without ever addressing the symptom. So he took his own profession, which he clearly dearly loves in some way, and critiqued it to say we need to have better engagement with people. We can't do it based on once a year summary facts and not real data. People know more about their condition collectively than we know about them in our recipe books. By way of example, Friend discusses an online wellness community. There's a small startup uh, that is led by uh, Tom Insel, who used to be the head of the NIMH, is now at, at Verily. His daughter said, why don't we ask people whether they would like to help each other? She started this site called Seven Cups of Tea. This is about people who are depressed or are having mood issues. And she said, let's, let's actually have the people who are having issues learn from each other and both give advice and get advice at a, that co-piloting level. And let's see what happens where you don't have a priestly expert that's driving it, but actually people learning from each other. She started this site, and uh, last time I looked, it had just gone over a million users. It's unbelievable how just has gone viral. A million people um, collecting it. Look there. If you want to have a, a live example of what happens when people are having issues on mood are actually um, not seen as just the person who is sick, but actually have something to share with another. What do people want? They want to be able to follow symptoms and how am I doing in my world. Right? If I wanted to have something that you know, everyone could leave here and be able to track, um, certainly one of those I would want to have is uh, how am I doing on, on my vitality and what can I do to restore it? Because um, on that nature-nurture uh, component, the one thing we have under our control <laughs> is the things we can do to keep it so we have vitality. Now, some of that's going to come from the genes, but I think the way you think, the way you treat yourself, what you consume, I don't mean food, uh, other things are under our control and have a chance of giving us an element of resilience um, by um, how we treat ourselves. And if we had a way to, to sort of assess that, that on the dashboard, I think that would be so awesome. Assuming that the practice of medicine is going to move beyond priestly experts giving one-way recipes to a model where huge reams of data from subjects, both the healthy and the sick, will be analyzed and processed, the question then becomes, who will do this analysis? Who will own this? Spoiler alert, Friend doesn't offer any simple answers. In fact, he shifts the conversation into a new direction. His concern with the broader issue of sensory overload and the frequently hidden filtering that we're all subject to. As he tells Marcus, The technology that we have has unleashed a flood of things that are there for us to consume. Uh, I don't mean food, thoughts, uh, ideas. And so this digital uh, world that we live in um, has such a deluge of things that are coming by. Existing technology has been optimizing on filtering it and filtering it in a way where um, is a little bit, I'm going to choose uh, what I send to you. So some of the work that I saw this last week here, where there was like a little bit of a choice in search, as opposed to, I'm, I think I know what, what you're going to want from uh, some other uh, groups, um, uh, is, is really important. And so one, one is this deluge. The other is, uh, at the same time that there's a deluge, our devices um, 
quote, helping us, giving us ways to, to do things, um, have given a level of efficiency that has a negative side. Efficiency, yay. But the negative side <laughs> is the amount of time when we actually feel as if we have a license or a, a benefit from stopping that conveyor of, of having a chance to actually have a dialogue with ourselves instead of that uh, consume filter issue is one very that, that I, I think I, I yearn for those who are working on technology to come up with ways of accountability in the filtering. And um, let's see if we can use our technology to give us more opportunities to pause. So you would think with this increase in efficiency, what we would be left with is times to have a dialogue with ourselves. Time to have a dialogue with ourselves is a dwindling resource. One friend characterizes as an endangered experience. As he sees it, this very real threat of constant distraction is a design feature of a modern society, not a bug. The lords and ladies of the land of artifice, consumerism, yes. must be just rolling and laughing <laughs> at the power that they now have to sort of direct things or that. And, and I actually don't think the pausing is something that they care at all about. It's almost like, oh my God, that person might think for themselves. So it's a lost ad interval. That's right. It's a lost exactly. ad opportunity, right? right? Yeah. And, and, and so uh, our world, you know, who are the lords and ladies of uh, our, our uh, uh, groups who actually have a, a particular desire to actually tip that uh, level to where you're always doing, you're always buying, you're always consuming. Um, that's what they're pleased with. And I, I, I don't think we have put enough emphasis into protecting those endangered experiences. We used to have a little more agency. We used to have a little more part of the decision making. And, and that, I love your, your phrase, endangered experiences, and you draw the uh, analogy to endangered species, which we protect in a certain way and limit the access to and the ability to do certain things and steal eggs from, from a nest and all that. But here we have endangered experiences, human experiences that we are losing because we're being overwhelmed by digital, digitally connected systems. There are no forces that are restoring balance in that. No one has an interest at the moment in restoring balance to say, we are damaging humankind by having not provided an adjustable, controllable filter that people can use and, and a rest period for them to consume the information. Yeah. And whose interest is it to do that? Correct. That's what. That's I, the problem, isn't it? Yep. Um, so it's absolutely in the interest of uh, individuals. What I'd say is, who that has power has that in their uh, their interest. That's exactly. And right. and I think that there are organizations who have worked on the concept of incumbent responsibility. We, as an institution, or I, as a person. Um, uh, have an obligation to uh, help, not, not necessarily to uh, make money, but, but to help and to give benefit back to society. And I think organizations where that role of uh, watching out for those that don't have uh, power, um, those that uh, might be able to need their endangered experiences protected, um, are rare. And I think some of the things I saw around here the last week suggest that that concept of uh, how you give back the obligation, incumbent responsibility of us as designers and people working in technology is, is something that is laudable. Weeks later, Marcus continues to ponder the implication of friends' talk, even, or especially, because he offered no easy answers. He went so logically from a place of very simple argument about you need to control your healthcare destiny up to we need to all accept that 
we're becoming overwhelmed with images and inured, we're becoming overwhelmed with data and unable to deal with it. Someone has to help us with this. We need to do something about this. And some part of that is a government or a knowledge base that helps us understand what's going on. And is it better that it's a machine than a government? He's questions. I don't know. Maybe it's a combination of decent government, decent machine, and our own involvement, re-engagement, that's the right answer. And I thought it was just brave. He was clearly almost emotional about this topic. And he went to the outer limits of his comfort, I think, in saying, this thing is what I care about. And uh, it, was, it was remarkable. Ultimately, Friend, despite his concerns, continues to have faith. When you look at Oppenheimer uh, and what happened after he um, completed the scientific uh, mission, when you look at someone like uh, Rachel Carson who found a problem and then uh, thought about it, I have faith in scientists uh, left to uh, do their design to anticipate some of the things that are the negative consequences. So I feel as if those who point out the negative consequences that are coming in the future are not to say stop, right? We shouldn't do that technology. It's an opportunity to go, hey, here's a new problem. So I, I see those elements that uh, we talked about in the lecture as being putting up flags or posts uh, that, that, that should allow people to go, ah, do we really have to? Could we get around it? And I think the, the more we look at the unforeseen consequences of uh, the globalization of that digital data, the ability of uh, people to filter and things like that, and, and don't shy away from that and go, oh, you're a naysayer, or AI will do this. The more we actually point those out, I do have faith that uh, scientists want to do good and, and will be able to put their attention not towards something they thought was original good idea. And if you give them a little uh, a place to go to, I, I think we'll see scientists going, I've got to watch those endangered experiences, not just artists. It's an optimistic note. It's just a cautionary note, but also an optimistic right. note. Yeah. Because I think you believe we're going to solve this. I do. But the caution has to be there for the, to motivate the attempt to solve it. Yeah. If you're feeling motivated, as we hope you are, have a listen to episode six, which is Friends Lecture and the Q&A session in full. If you like this episode of Future Human, please consider subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And also, feel free to leave a review at iTunes. Future Human is a production of Nokia Bell Labs. This episode was written and produced by me, Sandy Smolens, for Audiation.fm. It was recorded and mixed at the Loft in Bronxville, New York, by Matt Noble, who also composed the theme music with me. Audiation.